Welcome to Short Course, episode 11, for April 13th, 2018. I'm your host, Ben Barry. This week on the podcast, I want to talk about a book that came out a few years ago that talks about training, practice, improvement, and trying to approach the maximum level of mastery in, in really any discipline that you choose. The book is called Peak by Anders Ericsson and Robert Poole. And Peak is a good example of what I think of as an early season book. It's a book that if you haven't practiced before, haven't seriously practiced, it will hopefully give you some ideas and some motivation. If you have practiced before, it might reignite that fire, give you some things to change this year, this season, that you made some progress last year, but it's starting to get boring and you need to inject something different. This will help with that. And when I say early season book, that's in contrast to something like a late season book, which is something more like George Leonard's Mastery, which gives you more sort of motivation to stick it out, keep putting in the work, keep showing up every day, and it's less inspiration and more just fuel to, to keep going. And there's, a to me, a, a whole separate sort of category of those books. Peak is a very general book about how to get better at all kinds of things. And it's written by, Anders Ericsson is a psychology professor who's basically been studying how people learn and improve and get better at things in his lab for decades. And so he's written some of the papers that basically founded the field of, of expertise, as it's called now. So he's he's been in it for a while, and he's, he's learned a couple things. And this is sort of the first mainstream book that he's written about it, with Robert Poole, who's a, a journalist who really helped the book just kind of come together and be, be really good to read. So one of the things that they start out very early in the book talking about is some of the research into how training actually physically changes your brain. And th this isn't something that you can really control. Uh, it's not something that you can necessarily shape, but it is interesting to know that it's going on because what they did is they studied people trying to learn different skills. And in this chapter, they use a case study of people trying to learn to be London taxi drivers, where you have to learn all the roads and landmarks and I mean, you have to know London like the back of your hand to, to get your taxi license in London. And so people study for literally years to, to pass that exam and get their London cabbie license. And so they did brain scans on the, the people who made the, made it through and got their cabbie license and the people who dropped out and some just normal people who never trained at all. And just the, the difference of how the brain literally, as you study, as you practice over years, will rewire itself and dedicate areas that used to be used for one thing to whatever it is that you're training and trying to get better at. And they, they compare it to the what everybody knows about if you go blind, then your brain remaps the areas of your brain previously used for processing visual input to processing things like touch input, which is how you can get much more sensitive fingers and read braille. Same idea, but you can actually consciously cultivate this after a fashion. I mean, you can't visualize parts of your brain getting better but as you practice something you will drift in the direction and your brain will start to reorganize over time towards strengthening the part of the brain to do whatever it is that you're practicing you know this shows up in a couple ways because it, it it explains why it just takes a certain amount of time to get good at shooting you know it's not just that you need to learn how to do these things you know even if somebody explained to you how to do a perfect draw stroke it's going to take a certain amount of repetition to to ingrain that. And some of that's myelin, which is talked about in the talent code. And some of it is is this other process of, of actually remapping parts of the brain to specialize it towards whatever it is that you're training. And so while it's not something that necessarily you can do deliberately, it is nice to know that it's going on. And so even when you have a practice session that might not feel like 
you really learned anything. You just sort of put in the reps and, and got through it. It, it kind of helps you to know, okay, there, there's other stuff going on in your brain besides that. Uh, although they do talk about the idea of mental representations, which is the idea that essentially someone who is more proficient at a task is very, very likely going to be able to explain it, not necessarily teach it better, but explain it in more detail and have a more nuanced understanding of what it is a good whatever it is feels like, whether it's a competitive high dive or singing an opera, you know, they, there's just, there's more mental detail that the really good performers can, can put into it. Just understanding all the little details and being able to process them faster, because, you know, that is one of the interesting things about the, the changes that do go on in your brain as you practice something is that you actually begin to be able to organize information more quickly and process it more quickly. And, and part of that is the physical changes that, that go into the brain in, in the sense that if you spend time training just to react to a certain stimulus, you will actually begin to build up myelin. And so when that stimulus comes in, it's like a super highway to actually connect that stimulus to, to whatever reaction you want to have to it. And so it speeds up that process. So your, your brain changes at that level, but you also, as you learn whatever the discipline is, in this case, obviously we're going to talk about practical shooting, but as you learn whatever the discipline is, you get better at thinking about it in chunks and being able to zoom in really tightly on on all the individual details of a perfect draw or a perfect trigger press or a perfect sight picture, but at the same time being able to zoom out and sort of fit those different pieces together. The, the pitfall of a mental representation is a lot of times a really good one, a really clearly formulated simple one is almost almost feels trivially simple when someone tells it to you. You know, it's something like if you want to shoot an accurate shot, you know, pull the trigger without disturbing the sights, something like that. But, you know, there, there's actually some profound wisdom in that. It feels very obvious, but when you think about it very deeply and you, you really plumb the depths of what it means to not disturb the sights and pull the trigger straight back, there, there's actually a lot of wisdom compressed into that. One of the other nice things is that as you get more experience in the sport and your brain basically learns to map parts of your memory to understanding the the common concepts in this sport things like stage planning just will become easier because you you can chunk things into common patterns or the stuff that is common becomes the baseline and then any variations from normal stand out and you process those separately and so you know in that way you can walk up to a 32 round stage and using past experience when you look at it it sort of will break itself down into familiar patterns. And a lot of times if you start practicing drills, especially out of a, a book like Skills and Drills, you'll actually start to, when you walk up to a stage, sometimes you'll look at it and be like, hmm, okay, there's a distance change up over here, run over here, there's a little accelerator, and then at this last position there's a plate drill. And you you know how to do all those things. And so the stage actually breaks down very cleanly in that way. And so that's definitely something that, I think people coming in at first become very overwhelmed by, and you just almost, without even thinking about it, learn to break the stage down into those pieces. One piece of the book that, it comes up a couple times, but there, there's one section in particular where they talk about plateaus. And to me, this was the, the part that when I first read through the book was worth the price of admission alone. And the idea boils down to the fact that everybody hits plateaus, whether whatever discipline they're training in, nobody just has an unbroken string of steady improvement. And this is something that George Leonard talks about in Mastery. But Anders talks about 
specifically what in his research has worked for busting through those plateaus. And essentially the, the pithy phrase that he boils it down to is don't try harder, try different. And so if you're trying, if you hit a plateau and you can't break through it, don't just jam your head into it and try and, and incrementally just inch over the line because it doesn't work. Instead, come at it from different angles. So one example that he gives in the book, the, the, one of the common threads that runs through it is working with this student at the university where he's a professor at essentially a meaningless task just to test how good you can get at something meaningless. In this case, it's being having a string of numbers told to him and then remembering them and repeating them back exactly correctly. So, you know, reciting a phone number after being told it, but up to, I think, 80 or 100 digits by the end of it. And this was, this was used as a case study to just, in, in the abstract, something that nobody had ever been good at, but just to try and figure out, okay, how do you get better at this? What mechanisms are used in a vacuum? You know, when you have no reference material to refer to, how do you get better and, and improve at this? And one of the techniques that they found was helpful is that normally when they were testing the students that they worked with, they would read the numbers off at a rate of one number per second and he would have to remember them. And so, you know, a 60 number string would take a minute to read off. In that case, one of the things that he did was just instead of reading off one number every second, read off one number every two seconds. And what that did is that let the, the guy take more time to commit each digit or each group of digits as he developed techniques, commit each group of digits to memory. By doing so, he was able to surpass his previous high score of the number of digits he was able to remember. And what that proved to him is, you know, there's no physical limit. Whatever his limit that day was, it's not written in stone anywhere. It's just given the exact constraints of the challenges posed at that speed, he could only encode so many digits at a time. But when you slow it down, you break through the barrier. And the, the shooting analog to this would be something like, if you're having trouble with seven-yard bill drills, do bill drills at five yards and 10 yards and maybe that'll help you see something. If it doesn't try, you know, having two targets and shooting three rounds on each, try putting the target at 15 or, you know, three yards and, and just try different things sort of circling around the goal, sort of triangulating on the plateau that you can't bust through by going straight at it. Eventually what you will usually find is some kind of conscious skill breakthrough. You'll realize something, you'll notice something, you'll detect some change in your technique, whether it's at 10 yards or five yards. And, and once you know to look for that, once you know to practice that, then you can take that back to seven yards and improve your, your seven yard build drill, for example. Another place that this manifests in dry fire that I actually started doing after reading this book that I was using to help bust through plateaus was to start the part timer on a given drill above the part time that I actually want to hit. So just to pick a number out of the air, you know, if I want to do a, a four second, six reload six, then I would start the timer rather than, you know, starting right at four Oh, and just trying to hammer at it and hammer at it and hammer at it until I got some kind of breakthrough. I would actually start back at an easier part time that I knew that I could hit. So some, in this case, something like a 4.5. And on that first rep, I know I'm going to gonna beat it. So I'm not rushing to try and beat the part-time. I'm just sort of shooting at a comfortable pace, again, in dry fire, but executing the drill at a comfortable pace and expecting to beat the part-time. And then do a drill of that, drop the part-time down by a tenth, do a couple drills at that new part-time, again, comfortably beating it, but getting used to trying the drill under time pressure of some kind of part-time, but not a, a crushing, 
you know, this is not possible for me today, or at least it wasn't possible for me yesterday, kind of part-time. And slowly working the part-time as you get comfortable doing those reps and, and on, honestly getting used to beating the part-time by a little bit, then you you keep dropping the part-time down until the, the amount that you're beating it by gets smaller and smaller. And there's just something about that idea of, of starting behind your goal and then sort of working up speed to be able to break through that I found very helpful. And honestly, these days, I actually do that in, in most of my dry fire drills. And so, you know, whatever I know my, my standard time should be on a drill, I'll just to warm up, I'll just start the part-time two or three tenths below that and then kind of get comfortable with, yeah, I can beat this part-time. Yeah, I can beat this part-time. And then as it drops down, some days you beat the part-time that you'd never beaten before because you come, there's also, I think, a, a little bit of a psychological aspect that you come to expect that you're going to be able to beat it. You don't feel like it's a, it's a punishment every time you miss it. You're, you're having multiple successful reps that set you up to break through the plateau instead of going straight at the brick wall that you don't think you can break through and on your first rep having that confirmed. So that, that was very helpful to me and, and gave me that sort of new idea to, to practice with. Something else that he talks about is the idea of the 10,000 hour rule, which actually comes from research that he did and was popularized by Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers, which is on the whole a good book, but he got this one piece of it kind of wrong by misreading the research because the the idea that 10,000 hours is the magic number above which you are a master at some craft and below which you got to keep working came from a study that Anders Ericsson did where they were looking at students in their lifetime, how much practice they'd done on the violin for students at, at this music school and separating out the, the different skill groups. So there was a kind of a low, a middle, and a high skill group. And the high skill group at age 20, on average, had done about 10,000 hours of practice. But that was in the art of violin at 20 years old. They still needed more than 10,000 hours to become a world-class violin player. And violin is a field where people practice a lot. You know, people, some people start practice, you know, they start their kids at four or five years old or whatever. And so in that particular field to get to that particular level of accomplishment, to be in the pack, you know, to be in the running, to be competitive, to, to be world-class, you had to have on average 10,000 hours. Of course it's an average. So half of the people in the study didn't even have 10,000, but that result really only applies directly to violin you can imagine that there are a lot more people practicing violin than there are practicing practical shooting. And so to be in the running, to be world-class at practical shooting probably doesn't take 10,000 hours just because there aren't that many other people out there willing to dedicate that amount of time. Now, there are a couple people that have dedicated that amount of time. And if you want to be competitive with them, you probably do have to put in a comparable amount of time. Although, you might be able to learn from them, learn some shortcuts, you know, training has improved and evolved. So maybe you won't have to spend as much time as they did. But ultimately the idea that 10,000 hours applies to mastery generally across all disciplines, it, it just, it, it's a misreading of the research. And, and he goes into that in the book. If there's one overriding thesis of the book though, it's talking about different types of practice from sort of just repetitively doing whatever the activity is every day. So, you know, driving your car, you're not getting better at driving your car, just driving around town because you're not practicing. You're not taking time to actually identify weaknesses and improve. That's naive practice, he calls it, or, you know, just kind of going through the motions. Purposeful practice is what he talks about where you make some effort to practice specific things. You know, you, you may set up cones in a parking lot to practice your driving or 
you know, actually go to the pool hall. And if you want to work on your break, then you just work on your break for an hour, you know, not playing whole games, but isolating skills. And, and that's what we know as commonly, you know, dry fire and live fire where you're setting up mini stages, drills, you know, real specific things and then iteratively practicing them. And then graduating from what he calls purposeful practice to deliberate practice, which he calls sort of the gold standard. There are a couple interesting features about deliberate practice that he goes into. And one of them, for example, is is the idea of having an instructor who can look at you and evaluate your strengths and weaknesses and say, you know, you're already good at this. You don't really need to worry about that, but you're really deficient in this other thing. And here's what you should do to practice that and get better. And the sort of classic model for this would be something like weekly guitar lessons or, or any kind of instrument lesson where you go to the instructor, you play some stuff. He says, okay, your this is good, but that's bad. Practice this stuff for the week and come back next week. And so if you want to get really good as fast as possible, that's the way to do it. The problem is in our sport, there really isn't anything like that. As far as I know, there aren't a lot of shooting instructors that give sort of weekly checkup one hour lessons. Although that certainly would be an interesting business model if, if somebody wanted to go that direction. I think it would be a good way to start cranking out some, some really good shooters if you could get people dedicated, get them started young, and, and have those regular check-ins. In, in identifying what perfection is, he then also goes into a section about, okay, you're, maybe you're in a discipline where nobody is really good at it, and so or there are no identified experts, and so you have to sort of make your own curriculum. And he goes into some ideas on how to do that. Or, you know, there just might not be experts in your field for whatever reason, or they might not be accessible. Somewhat more like competitive shooting, where you're lucky to take a, a class with a really high-level instructor once or twice a year, but you need something to keep you going every week. And and so he goes into some of those ideas and, and basically how to build a training plan, even if you don't have uh, an instructor that you can go to every week. And, of course, I'm just scratching the surface here. There are all kinds of other stories about practicing, and, and in particular, it seems like almost every page, he's got some other anecdote about people learning to speak English as a second language, or play basketball, or play chess. Chess and music are kind of the main the main themes, just because I think they're so heavily studied, but keeps coming back to those. But, you know, almost every page has some idea, something interesting that they breaks you out of your shell because we get so used to training and dry firing and practicing in so specific ways that I found it really interesting to look at everything that, that they were talking about and say, okay, how, if I wanted to apply this idea to practical shooting, what would that look like? And it gave me some ideas on how to improve my training. Overall, it's a really well-written book. It's, it flows well, it's interesting, it's engaging, but as you're reading, you know, they'll be telling a story about how somebody broke through some plateau, and you're like, hmm, okay, that's pretty interesting, and then the wheels start turning in your brain, and it gives you an idea of, of how to modify your own training. I definitely recommend the book. It's something that, to me, is integral to my training, to keep reading these kinds of books and giving myself new ideas on how to improve my training and keep having new approaches to break through plateaus, not just for the sake of novelty, although that does help keep motivation up, but just because it you, you always need more tools in your toolbox to approach different problems. And so I've got this book, I've got Mastery that I mentioned earlier, I've got The Talent Code, and a bunch of other books that I found helpful or interesting or sparked some ideas. Those are all on a reading list on my blog at barryshooting.com slash books. That wraps up this episode of Short Course. You can find me on Facebook at Ben Barry Shooting and on Instagram at BS Barry. 
I post my match videos on YouTube at youtube.com slash USPSA. My blog is at berryshooting.com. I'm interested in including listener questions on the show, so if you have a question that you'd like to get an answer to, email it to me at podcast at berryshooting.com. If it's a straightforward question, I might just email you back and try and get you an answer quickly. If it's something that I think would make for a good discussion, you know, be helpful to others, then I'll talk about it on the podcast. But, you know, everything's fair game, anything technique, dry fire, mental game, match skills, gear questions, you know, feel free to ask. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.